One of our society's great financial and lifestyle milestones is buying a house. But do you really have to buy a house to be considered a true successful adult? We don't think so. Find out why renting is the new way to adult. Welcome to Adulting, the podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at adulting.tv. Welcome to Adulting. I am Harlan Landis, and I am here with Miranda Marquit. How are you, Miranda? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Today we're nice. talking about something that I've been doing pretty my whole life, and that's renting. <laughs> nice, <laughs> renting and yeah. buying is what we're talking about, really. Right, and I love renting, so it's very exciting because I've done both. I've I've bought and I've rented, and we're not alone. There are a lot of people today who are choosing uh not to buy homes yay it's part of my my plan to start a revolution everybody rent yeah i'm i'm not 100 percent convinced that i will never own a home in fact i'm probably going to start looking soon but everybody's situation is different what we're talking about is this idea that you finish college get married buy a home start a family and that is the only way to adult. And guess what? That's not the only way to adult. Right. And, and buying a house does not mean that you're successful either. A lot of the time we see buying a house as a sign of success as an adult. And it is not. There are a lot, and as we'll talk about this later in the episode, there are a lot of people who, who uh, own their houses that are way far from being successful adults. Absolutely. So... One of the things that I found interesting was a roundup um, by TheAtlantic.com of reasons that young people are not buying houses. And it's not just because of the recession, uh, although that does have something to do with it. The, the rate of t- late 20-something um, individuals buying homes in 2009 to 2011 was half of what it was in the previous decade. Um, That is a huge decline. It probably has a lot to do with the housing boom of the previous decade, where everybody and their grandkids were buying houses. And, you know, I I remember having this discussion right before the housing uh, crash. I am going to say it was probably around 2002. So it was a little earlier than the uh, than just before the housing crash. But I remember talking to people who were just basically out of high school. I don't even think these individuals went to college, but they might have. But anyway, they were they were young. They were, you know, moving along the paths that their family had set for them, which included, you know, getting married. And and the next thing was buying a house. And they said, Oh, absolutely. We're going to buy a house. No, we don't have any money, but we're going to, you know, we're going to qualify for a mortgage and we're going to put no money down and we're going to go buy a house because it is uh, it it you know, it's it's guaranteed to increase in value. 
and they thought that this was going to be a great investment, getting head over their heels in debt and uh, at a time that was just a couple of years before the housing crash and uh, buy as much house as the bank would allow them to buy. And at that time, the bank was certainly allowing people to buy a lot of house and uh, this would not end well for a lot of people. People got into this idea that housing is always a good investment, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And the truth of the matter is, it's not. A lot of young people who are most vulnerable to the housing crisis ended up in a terrible position. So that was one of the reasons that young people were are not buying houses now. They've seen a lot of people go through that mess, and they don't they don't want to do that. Another reason is that student loan debt has been increasing. Um, this the cost of going to college has been increasing so much vastly beyond inflation that people are unable to handle all of it. They're come out of college with, with huge student loan debt that they didn't have in previous generations. And it is preventing people from putting down the money to buy a house. And I think too, it is some of the security that comes with knowing that you have fewer obligations on your pocketbook and it's it's not just the down payment, but it's also that feeling of security. When you know you have these massive student loans, it's really hard to feel secure about getting another loan for a house. So I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this the the debt load and the psychological impact of having financial responsibilities that can easily go beyond your starting salary um, can prevent you from taking the jump into the, such a huge financial responsibility that owning a house is. Another interesting reason is that income for men has stagnated all the way going back to the 1980s. And if you look at you know the effect of, we're talking about the we take inflation out of the picture here and we realize that men's income has basically stayed the same if you look at the median anyway. Of course, people at the top have gotten increases in their income year to year and people at the bottom are in a worse condition now, but you look at the median and it has stayed the same just for men. So you would think that, well, first of all, men are therefore in a a more difficult position to afford to buy a house since it is such a huge financial outlay and expense over time. But you would think that as women's income has increased, or at least the median income for women has increased over that same amount of time, that it would be balanced and that households would still be able to afford the expenses of owning a house. But you combine this these, these facts with the fact that people are getting married less often now, uh, young people are getting married less often. So the the combined household income doesn't really come into play uh, because people are on their own more dealing with income from just one person. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And, and I think that goes into larger uh, social changes that we're seeing as well, where the we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about millennials and work ethic a little bit, but you end up with a situation where one, a lot of you know, millennials aren't interested in a traditional job that's going to pay the sort of salary or the sort of with the sort of regularity that you would need to support a mortgage. And there's a lot more interest in mobility and lifestyle flexibility. And then once again, like you said, fewer marriages, people are getting married later. And a lot of people are saying, what's the point of getting married anyway? 
Sure. Uh, you know, the nature of the two income household is changing and it may not exist in the same way that it has for Generation X, which has which have done, you know, they've basically that's a generation that has tried this two income household thing. And perhaps it doesn't work as well as, you know, it appeared to back when, you know, the whole idea of a yuppie was the big thing in the 1980s, you know, that it turns out that most of that would, did not work out the way people expected. Um, so that's really interesting. And, and and for me, you know, I talked a little bit about some friends that I had some years ago who, you know, basically believed that getting a, buying a house was a, a, the, an important piece of being an adult. Uh, of course, we didn't call it adulting back then because <laughs> that was before people started talking like that. The way people look down on those who choose not to buy a house or could not afford to buy a house was was very offensive. And, you know, basically there's an attitude that people have and it goes along with just about every rite of passage that we have and you know for a long time buying a house was this kind of adulting rite of passage but basically oh well you know now I'm, I'm the first of my friends to go out and buy a house look at us we're really adults now <laughs> and that approach that attitude is offensive to people who can't afford to uh, buy a house or choose not to buy a house because what does that mean? Does that mean that they're not adults because they haven't decided to sign their lives and livelihood away to a bank that's going to basically own the house that they're living in um, for the next 30 years or in some cases 40 years or more? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the things to consider too is when you're renting and one of the things I love about renting is you're actually paying a comparatively small fee for a shelter and for somebody else to take care of it. You don't have to take care of it. Part of it's that convenience issue. And a lot of the time we do, like you said, think, oh, well, you know, part of being an adult is you have the house, you take care of the house, you remodel the house, you take care of the lawn, you do all of this stuff. And that, that means you're an adult. And I think we tend to forget that just because we're not following somebody else's script doesn't mean we aren't adulting. You can adult according to your own script. It just means you make sure you take care of what needs to be taken care of. And that does not have to be a house that you buy with a mortgage. Yeah. And I would argue that being a, an adult is more about making the right decision for you and, you know, like you said, not following someone else's script, but being able to identify and think about and consider the idea that perhaps buying a house isn't as good as the whole world is telling you it is, especially people acting on behalf of realtors, people with real estate agents in their families, people who invest in real estate and do well and think that owning a house is the same thing as investing in real estate, which it is not. <laughs> so all of these forces are coming at you and being the adult is being able to say, hold on a minute. I'll listen to what you have to say, but I'm also going to do this research and the, the, the numbers that you're saying are not accurate and this information is better and this information says that you're wrong and I'm going to make choices based on the best information. Right. And one of the things that I think we need to start with is that 
financial myth that your home, your own home, your residential home is an investment. And that's what we heard all the time when we were shopping for a home because we did buy one. I was a uh, quote unquote homeowner, homeowner for seven years. And when we were looking for the house, the real estate agent was like, this is the best investment you'll make. This is your number one investment. This is an investment. Don't forget that this is an investment. And they hammered in your head. But the reality is, is that home that you live in, that primary residence you have, that is not really a financial investment. You're, it's a mortgage. You've got a mortgage. You're paying interest on it. And the return, the average return for real estate, for the most part, is not you know, everybody's like, oh, well, you can assume a five to 10% appreciation per year on your home. And it's like, what? No. You know, maybe if maybe, maybe if you're living in an area in California, maybe, or Florida, or New York, or something like that. But for most people, for most of middle America, for most of us buying homes, you're lucky. You're lucky if it keeps pace with inflation. The average return for real estate just keeps pace with inflation for the most part. So once you figure that in and say, oh, well, now I've paid for maintenance. I've paid for repairs. I've paid my property taxes. I've paid all of these things into it. Plus, let's not forget you're paying interest. You're paying your mortgage interest. Okay, you're paying your mortgage interest as well. And once you have all of that figured in, the reality of the situation is, is you are probably not making a return when you sell that house. Right. And that is completely contradictory to what most people will tell you when they sell their house. But, you know, you said something earlier, you know, the idea that people look at a house, the house you live in as an investment, and that's what we're told to do. Um, But that's not the appropriate financial classification for a house. Um, Right. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk, you know, the house itself is an asset, the liability, the, the mortgage is a liability that you have on that asset, but forget all of, forget all of that. It doesn't matter. The house is an expense unless, (laughs) unless you're making money from renting the house out or part of the house out, everything that you put into the house is an expense. And the house forces you to have these expenses that you wouldn't have otherwise. And everybody forgets about the expenses when you do this calculation at the end of the day, you owned the house for 10 years, you sold it, you, you say, you told people you made $150,000 on it because you sold, you bought it for 400000 you sold it for 550000 let's say. But guess what? You are forgetting all of the expenses that you paid in order to keep that house in order for it to retain that value and to grow that much over the course of the 10 years let's say so chances are you spent way more than that $150,000 spending on things that you would not have had to spend on if you were renting you could have been investing that money the whole time in you know an index fund in the stock market and while there's no guarantees there either at least we know that the average return over a long period of time is way better than you know the average return on one particular house yeah well i can tell you right now that if those 7 years that we were paying on a mortgage and paying for maintenance and paying our hoa fees and paying our property taxes 
that seven years that we had the house, if we had been investing, because that's the other thing, uh, depending on the market you're in, the market we were in at the time, we could rent a house, uh, a comparable house for about $200 less per month than what we were paying on our mortgage. And that doesn't include all of the maintenance and repairs and property taxes and all of that. That's just just the straight up house cost. And we could have been investing that and we would have been way ahead because when we ended up selling, because we had to sell quick and we had to sell uh, because my then husband had a job across the country. uh, Not only that, not only did we spend along the way, but we had to pay $10,000 to make this deal go down and make it happen. Uh, Because you have, you have all sorts of fees to pay, especially if you use a real estate agent. And it just, if we had invested instead, and even even if we had come out ahead when we sold the house and not had to pay to get rid of it, we still would have come out ahead investing during those seven years and renting instead of paying on the mortgage. So you mentioned that you had to sell relatively quickly. And the you know, a lot of people when they're making this decision, they're they're sitting down with their numbers. Should I should I buy this house or not? They're making all of these assumptions um, in order to determine whether it's a financial benefit to buy any particular house. And so they make these assumptions like how many years are we expecting to stay in the house? Are we going to be there for 30 years? Are we going to be there for 10 years? But the reality is that life happens and people have to change their plans. And you may plan to spend the next 30 years in your first home and then when you or, you know, maybe your second home and then retire and then buy a house later. But a lot of people have that plan and a lot of people find that a few years into it, something happens. Someone's job gets transferred and you have to move if you want to keep the job. Someone loses a job and you have to find a job. You go through a recession, you run out of money and you lose the house. There are so many things that can happen that make all those assumptions that you made at the very beginning, they make them just guesses. And you may have it all planned out and you say, look at the numbers. It is clear that we are going to make more money or we're going to have more money in the end by, you know, buying a house and living in it in this particular area because the forecast is that real estate's going to grow there. And you make all these assumptions, you've put them into a calculator on the New York Times website and you say, all right, this is our plan. And then all of those assumptions end up being wrong because you can't account for a lot of things that happen to you in your life. You always have a choice. You can always choose to, you know, you choose whatever you do. And if you get fired, sure, it's probably your fault somewhere down the line and you chose to do that. But guess what? It's still a situation you have to deal with. And if it's not part of your plan, if you didn't plan for it in your initial figuring of whether a house was going to be a good investment, then you've basically there's a good chance you've lost everything that you've (laughs) that you thought was good. Of course, you know, it's just. It's just one of those things and you move on and you deal with it and you adjust as you go along. But making these assumptions and making making the decision based on finances that are based on assumptions that you pull out of thin air is a very dangerous thing. You have to make the decision based on more than just things that you can't really control. Yeah. And I think another consideration, too, is the idea of 
this for savings or having a nice chunk of capital when you're done because people assume that that's their profit what you were talking about before you you buy the house for 400,000 you sell it for 550,000 you're like oh well i've made $150,000 profit and yeah you may have that chunk of change there at the end but the reality is is you probably haven't profited because you have spent like you said more than that 150,000 but you go around telling people that and the other thing too is you know it's nice to say oh well i'm going to have this nice chunk of change, I'm going to build equity, and then when I sell, then I'll, at least I'll have a nice big bunch of capital to use. Well, what happens if the market takes a dive just before you need to sell, and now you can't unload your house, and now you're stuck with it, and now you don't have a chunk of capital, and you have to keep working in order to pay the property taxes on it. Right, and not only that, but m- most of the time when people sell their house, it is because they are, you know, perhaps their family is growing, they're, they're usually trading up. And so any profit that you have from that sale, um, which may not be profit, so to speak, but any cash that you get, you know, that check that you receive or that that um, bank transfer or that wire that you get at the end of the day for the sale of your house, most of the time that's just going right into your next house, which is an upgrade, which is going to cost you more money in, in the long run anyway. So you're unless you're downsizing, you don't really get that cash at the end you know that it might be nice to have that cash even though it's not profit like we talked about but you're just going to have to use it for your next house unless unless you're downsizing and downsizing is always a good thing to do if you can for sure and there are just a lot of things that people don't think about when they're running the numbers a lot of the time when they're saying oh well let's figure out how much house i can afford they base it on, oh, well, it's the, that 30% rule of thumb. So if I make, you know, just be simple, if I, if I make $6,000 a month, then I can spend $2,000 on my mortgage. Well, back up there because your housing costs each month and your housing affordability isn't just what you think you're paying for your mortgage and how much monthly you're going to pay there. We're talking, you've got to think about your interest payment. You've got to think about your homeowner's insurance, which is going to be more expensive than your renter's insurance. You've got to think about, like you said, most people are upgrading when they buy. They're upgrading their house. They're moving out of an apartment and now into a bigger house. Well, your utility expenses are going to be bigger. Now you're going to have to pay property taxes. You might have homeowners association fees. And let's not forget that, let's be honest, most people who are buying a home have not saved up that 20% down payment. And so that means they're going to be paying a mortgage interest fee as well. So these costs add up and then you, you forget about how much it costs to move into the place. You need new furniture. You probably need to buy window treatments. When we bought our house, we showed up there and we realized we didn't have any shower curtains. We didn't have any blinds or curtains for the windows. We had none of that stuff because we'd always rented before. And you don't, these are things you don't think about. But all of a sudden we're looking around going, we don't have any of this stuff that was normally provided in a rental. And now we have to go buy it. So when you're thinking about home affordability, a lot of the time, there are all of these little costs from buying a lawnmower to buying the gas for the lawnmower to buying snow shovels to buying ice melt. All of these things, they may seem small, but they start to add up and you can spend, you know, probably uh, 20 to 30 percent of your housing payment on each month, you should consider that is probably what you're going to pay for maintenance and upkeep. 
So that that's something people don't consider when they start thinking about home affordability that they really need to. So we've talked a lot about the financial considerations that come into play here, but buying a house is more than just the financial consideration. You you had said you know earlier that it's also about the work that you have to put in uh, <laughs> personal work uh, unless you're just paying for you know a landscaper and a house cleaner and all these other things that you can just pay people to do if you have the money. But you know it's a lot of. Uh, otherwise it's going to be a lot of work that you have to do and sure it may be work that somehow signifies you as an adult in society I don't I don't know whether that's true or not <laughs> but it's work that you wouldn't have to do if you were renting because that's what landlords are for and that's what you're paying your rent for um, but even more important than that I think than the work because everyone can learn to do the work is the flexibility that you have with a lease uh, if you're renting a place, unless you have a really long lease for some reason, you are able to have the flexibility to deal with the things that life hits you with uh, much easier. If you need to move, you can move. Uh, sure, you might have to break a lease and there might be a penalty, but it would be so much easier than trying to sell your house on short notice. That is something that, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people go through. Miranda, you've gone through it. And it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really easy way to lose, be on the losing side of a financial transaction. It's it's being you know having to sell a place under pressure. When you rent, you have the flexibility. You can you can do what you need to do. You can uh, live. You you can move freely. You don't have to be tied down to a specific place. Um, and of course, all, all that is a lot easier when you don't have a huge family that you're also trying to support. Um, that also. Uh, eliminates your ability to be flexible and eliminates your mobility. But when you have the choice, uh, buying a house versus renting um, or buying an apartment versus renting and really buying any living space versus renting that living space, the more flexibility and mobility is given to those who are renting in short term. Um, Now, of course, there's a trade-off and, you know, we're not saying that renting is always the best solution. There's a trade-off because sometimes the better housing choices are available to those who are buying rather than those who are renting. Yeah, in the area I live in right now, it's actually, <laughs> I rent because I like the freedom and flexibility and I I like not being responsible for the property. And so even though I'm renting a house, I'm still renting. But the area I live in, I could probably buy something comparable to this house and the mortgage payment would be about $300 less than what I pay in rent. And so there is that kind of trade-off that you have to look at as well. But when it comes down to it, if, if you're looking for a place to live, if you're looking for your residence, it's mostly about lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice and not necessarily something uh, that's going to be much else. There is actually a way for your house that you live in to be a good investment, but that only comes from actually making money on a day-to-day basis through your house. And there aren't a lot of good ways to do that without putting in some work. And that could involve renting an area of your home, whether it's a bedroom or whether it's a separate facility on 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 your lot, whatever it happens to be. But, you know, just finding a way to make some money through most likely renting 
a portion of your property out to other people. So that way, your house, which is normally generating expenses, is also generating income, and that income can offset that expense um, at least partially, maybe fully, or maybe you can even make money from a cash flow perspective month to month um, based on your ability to, uh, you know, kind of keep your mortgage payments low on the one hand and, uh, and, and earn enough income from renting on the other. So that's not easy to do. Uh, it is something that requires a lot of work and a lot of research. You have to buy the right property. And remember that this is a property you're living in as well, unless you plan on moving out and just renting out the entire place. Uh, so it's a lot of work to manage. You're adding a rental property um, aspect into your home. Um, it, it kind of it ties you down even more. It means that you have more responsibilities that you may not have had if you were to just rent a place, obviously, or if you were to just own the place without being a landlord. Uh, so these are all things that you have to weigh as well. But it's probably the only way that you can actually live out this idea that your home in which you live, your primary residence, is a good investment. Yeah, and that's something to think about as well because we talked about the mortgage and that's a liability and one of the things that we also talk about when we talk about owning a home is that we're owning a home. But when you've bought it with a mortgage, really the bank kind of owns it because the bank is actually who's put up the money for it. You are repaying the bank. And so the bank has actually put up the money for it. And if you can't make that payment to the bank, the bank has a right to take that home from you. And speaking of, you know, related things, you know, you've got property taxes. Uh, if you're not paying your property taxes, even if your home's paid off, your home can still be taken away from you if you're not paying your property taxes. So there's a lot that goes into it as well. Lots of people are like, well, I want to buy the house because it's mine and I have the stability. You still have to make these obligations. You still have to take care of that. And if you are buying with a mortgage, then the the bank has first right to the home, not you. There's even more bad news. Um, <laughs> there is this thing uh, called eminent domain. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, maybe you're excited about this, but I am not. Uh, <laughs> well, home, it doesn't matter to me because yeah. I don't own a home. <laughs> home. Homeowners should not be excited about this. And, you know, the, the chance of having to go through this is is pretty low and some communities will be more affected than others. And of course, it's probably going to be low income communities who are always affected by things worse than everyone else. Uh, but eminent domain basically says that if the government, and this could be a local government, state government, maybe federal, I'm not sure about that. But if they decide that your property would be better off serving the community, uh, and usually that comes through an economic advantage. Say, you know, the the town or the state wants to build um, a highway, for instance, and your home is in the path of that highway. Uh, a lot of the times, they'll they they will work with the homeowners as much as possible. And uh, but if the community still believes that this is the best thing to do for that property, they they can take your property as long as there's some kind of economic benefit to the community. The government can just decide that, you know, they, they've worked with you. They've tried to buy your property. You're you're not giving it up. You want to stay where you are for whatever reason. 
There could be good reasons to do that. There might not be. But either way, they have the right to take your property. And that's not a position that you want to be in. And thankfully, I'm sure a lot of listeners will never have to deal with it. But it's just another way that you believe that you own your property and you can do anything you want with it. But guess what? The bank is a higher priority than you and the government is a higher priority than you. So they will all be able to do whatever they want with their property if if the mood strikes them, basically, because, you know, basically any argument can be made that they want to make and uh, and you'll just have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, and another thing to consider, too, is when you decide to do your property in a neighborhood, there is an instance not you know, just a couple blocks from where I live where somebody bought bought a lot and then subdivision and they wanted to build this huge house and the neighbors were like, no, <laughs> that's way big. It's going to be too close to our other properties. It's going to be frustrating and annoying. And they put in a petition and they had to change their house plans because it because the neighbors and if you live in a place where you're in a homeowners association then you're subject to what you can put on your lawn for decoration how long your lawn has to be all of that stuff so there are lots of restrictions put on a place even when you think you own it and you can do whatever you want because it's your property there are a lot of restrictions that come into play depending on where you are i think it's important to say also from a historical context why Owning property is such a huge deal, and this isn't something that just came about and is a part of American culture, but even before Europeans started coming over to what is now the United States, being a landowner meant that you had rights that no one else had. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of property is something that was instilled on many, you know, civilized westerners in europe how did we end up with happiness instead of property yeah i think our, i think our founding <laughs> fathers decided that well not everybody's going to be a property owner so let's give people something that they can actually achieve <laughs> little did they know that happiness is also something that very few people achieve but that's another issue um yeah so life liberty and the pursuit of property was you know the rights that landowners had the opportunity to have rights that other people did not have. And that is why owning property has come down to our, you know, our generation, this millennium, as something that is still very highly recognized as something that people need to do. And just historically, that's kind of the path that we've been on. Um, basically, the rights go to the landowners. If you don't own land and and you're a renter and you, you're living on land that is owned by somebody else, as a lot of us renters are, then you don't have rights. Thankfully, the United States is different in these days in that you can rent and still have rights just like everybody else. You can still vote. You can still be represented in government. You can still do everything that a landowner does. Um, but still limited by these things that we talked about, like eminent domain and other, and other, you know, and the bank and other issues. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, historically there, there's no reason today for this to be the case with home ownership being the, the sole identifying mark of being a fully functioning adult. It just happens to come this way throughout history. So as you're trying to figure this out, that's, that's a beautiful thing about 
where we're at right now in society, the, the way we think about adulting is changing, the way we think about identifying ourselves is, is changing, and, and we have more options, which is great. So if you're trying to figure it out, and we're not saying that you have to rent in order to be happy, uh, what we're saying is you need to think about and, and rethink the narrative that says you have to buy because that's been the narrative for so long. What we're saying is change the way you think about that. So what are some things that our listeners can do right now if they're ready to say, well, let me decide. Maybe I want to buy, maybe I want to rent. How should I figure out my living situation? What are some things you can do now as you start making that decision? Well, this is a fun thing to do. Go to the New York Times rent versus buy calculator. And of course, we'll have a link on our website or you can just Google it. But go through the process of trying to figure out whether you can afford the house that you've either purchased or maybe you're looking to purchase a house or, or find something on Zillow, identify something, and then use some of those numbers to figure this out. The, the calculator asks you a lot of questions and it'll give you some guidance, but you have to make a lot of assumptions and you have to basically blindly guess at some of the numbers that you're, you're looking at. And forget about what the numbers say, but just look at those questions and see all the guesses that you have to make in order to make the decision uh, financially of whether buying a house is a good idea or not. And you're going to see that these questions, there's no way you can predict the answers to some of these questions. The, 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 the numbers that you have to put in there to, to make the calculator work are just things that you're going to have to pull out of your hat. You know, the New York Times will give you some suggestions, but they could be way off, and there's no way to know until until it happens. There's no way to know if your life is going to be interrupted two years into your 30-year mortgage with a decision that you have to make that's going to change the way your whole family approaches your house. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, the next thing you should do now is evaluate your life goals. Too often we get stuck in somebody else's script, somebody else's idea of what we should be doing without really thinking about what our own life goals are. So sit down, take a f- few minutes to map it out. Uh, we've got a great post on the website about how you can map out your, your life and figure out what you want to do and figure out what it means to you. What does it mean to settle down? Is it something that you have to do? Is it something you even want to do? What does your life, what should your life look like? Sit down and figure that out. And if you're getting close to the decision uh, of either buying a house or not buying a house, um, what you need to do right away as soon as possible is get an honest look at your financial situation. Uh, can you really afford everything that is going to have to go into this house? You've got the down payment, you've got the monthly mortgage, you've got closing costs, you've got insurance, you've got tax payments, you've got homeowner's fees, you've got repair, you've got uh, insurance, you've got mortgage insurance, you've got everything that we've talked about. Can you actually afford all of that? Or are you just thinking about that mortgage bill as if that's the only thing that you need to be concerned about and then you need to think about what's going to happen can you still afford all of those things if your partner loses their income if you lose your income and you're relying on just your partner how quickly can you get a job reasonably and make up that income that you're losing do you have savings put away for those lean times just in case you need 
to cover the costs without income uh, because you do not want to be evicted from your own house. You do not want to lose your house to the bank um, because you're in a bad financial situation. Now, I know that a lot of banks are going to work with you as much as possible to get you to keep paying something, but the you never know when there's going to be another great recession and the market's going to take a big dive and banks are going to be, you know, uh, strewn up and they're, you know, the CEOs are going to be hanged and people are going to be getting in trouble for making st- stupid banking decisions on the uh, the loans that they're giving out. Uh, I promise you the CEOs are not going to be facing the same consequences you are. No. They never do. They never do. <laughs> they they aren't. They're not they're not getting strung up anywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> you might be held responsible for your poor decision or your housing decision, but I promise you the CEOs are not going to be held responsible the same way. Yeah. Chances are if you think you can afford it, you're probably You can't. <laughs> so <laughs> And if you if you have to stretch to make it work. Uh, if you're not confident about it, if you're like, oh, well, if I stretch a little bit this way, you can't. You just can't. All right. So we've got a listener question today. And the listener has written in with this question. How can I improve my credit so I can qualify for a mortgage? Uh, Qualifying for a mortgage is one of the most important pieces of buying a house for most people because most people do not have cash in the hundreds of thousands or the high tens of thousands ready to go for buying even a starter home. Yeah, well, the first thing to realize, uh, too, as you're looking to improve your credit, is that you probably need credit, good credit to qualify for a lease as well. That's right. Uh, I know that the last, well, the last four houses I've rented, uh, I've had, and even the last apartment I was in, I went through a credit check. And... If you're going to live in a place, especially a place that you really want and that meets your ideas of uh, the amenities you want, you need to have good credit. So that said, uh, let's let's talk about it. First, you need to know where you stand and you should be able to find out you, you can get you're entitled to a free copy of your credit report from the major bureaus one per year. So you can have a look at your credit report. It won't give you your credit score uh, for free, but you can look at your credit report and see where you stand. Yeah, and you can also get your credit score um, at myfico.com. You can go there and get pretty much the same score that lenders will see. I mean, there are always variations in different lenders and... uh, Right, but you need to pay for that. Right, that that's not free. That is something that you, but you should be aware of what your score is as well. And there are some free sites that also have other credit scores that you can look into. But w- when you apply for a mortgage, you will also, you have the right to see the same information in terms of credit score as to what they're seeing. I know I know that when I, um, I went to uh, a bank to find out what I would be qualified for, and so they ran everything and then gave me a rundown of what they were looking at and uh, why they were making, you know, whatever decision it was they were making. Yeah. And realize, too, that your credit report isn't perfect and there are probably mistakes. Uh, when we were applying for our mortgage and working on getting our pre-approval, uh, they found that some of our our debt had been <laughs> 
reported twice. We had we had student loans that had been reported twice. And so it looked like we had twice as much debt as we actually had. Hmm. And that, of course, does not bode well for somebody trying to get a mortgage. And so that was a problem. So we had to have that fixed. And another one was we had one of our credit cards was double reported. And we are in the uh, we've been in the habit of uh, using the credit card to pay for things and then paying off the credit card at the end of the month. But if you're stuck in the middle of the cycle and it's reporting before you've paid off that balance, it looks like you're carrying this massive balance even if you're not. And that credit card happened to be double reported. So once again, it looked like we had all this debt that we didn't actually have. And so uh, you want to you correct your uh, credit report if there are mistakes on your credit report. Yeah, and once you've corrected anything that's wrong, you have to take a look and see, well, are there any bad marks on this report that are my <laughs> fault and that are true and that I have to deal with? Yeah, and it is something that's going to show up on your credit report and you have to keep going back and you have to keep fixing it. And that actually happens to my brother, whose name is Robert Smith, mm. uh, because some sometimes some random Robert Smith will get stuck on his credit report, something attributed to him even though it's not him and so you have to do go through this process and uh, sometimes you can put a credit freeze on to prevent that in the future meaning they have to contact you directly before opening credit uh, in your name and then you know and sometimes you just have to have a note put on your file that says hey this stuff is fraudulent and it has to be taken into consideration it's, but it's something you do have to deal with. It's not something that just goes away. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, going back to what you were saying about building your own credit, you do want to, I mean, the biggest thing is making your payments on time. Right. And having payments to make. Um, right. Uh, one, one of the biggest ways to build credit when you're younger uh, is to use a credit card, but to use it responsibly and to only spend what you can absolutely pay off each month and then actually pay it off each month. That will help you build credit history from the beginning. But if you can't get a credit card, a regular credit card at first, you'd have to go with um, a uh, secured credit card. Um, And so that will help you build your credit from the beginning. Uh, But it is... You know, you ha- you just have to be very careful with the way you approach it because secured credit cards can be very expensive and you don't want to have to pay any interest and you don't want to have to be trapped into any credit card traps. And there's a lot of those. Yeah, so it's, it's very good to be careful. Another thing is to keep your debt low. Uh, they look at how much debt you have compared to how much available credit you have. And that's called your utilization. Uh, and so you want to make sure that you keep your debt lo- as low as you can. Uh, just so that it doesn't look like you're going to be overwhelmed by your next by your mortgage payment. Sure. And once you start getting into those good financial habits and the financial industry is aware of you, you have a credit history and is aware that you are a a decent risk in that you you handle your financial responsibilities well, then you have built up the credit history and you can you have something to show your landlord or you have something to show the mortgage lender that you are a good enough risk to 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 either live in the space or to receive the uh, the extension of credit so that you can you can afford to buy a house because it's going to be hard to do that without a mortgage. Yeah, so make so that's the most important thing is to start your good habits early. 
Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Adulting. It's a fun one and one that we feel passionately about. So if you have your own thoughts on buying or renting, please let us know. Visit adulting.tv where you can engage with us or you can join our Facebook community and let us know what you think about buying versus renting. Tell us whether we're right. Tell us whether we're wrong and share your own experiences in this area. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes uh, and leave us a review. We love to hear. And if you have a question, send it in and we'll either answer it in a post on adulting.tv or we will address it in a future podcast episode. And until next week, uh, good luck acting like a grown-up. Thank you for listening to Adulting. Find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv.